they run because they're that excited to get to First Kids Worship, or they're that excited to get out before I start speaking. I don't ever know which one it is, but hopefully it's first. Anyway, I do want to congratulate, though, I don't do this too often on, on uh, worship, but I want to congratulate the Berkeley High School baseball team for winning the state championship 5A, really amazing for our community, and uh, yeah, you can clap for that. <clears throat> and uh, and then I think last year, our Christian school down the road, St. John's, won the state championship for Skiza, so two years in a row, we've had our local team's state champions, and so we knew that we had the base, best baseball in the state, but now we have proof, right? So uh, anyway, uh, we, we knew that, so we're excited about that. Good exposure for our community and, and uh, really something that everybody can rally around. So, well, this is Memorial Day weekend. It's a time where we can pause and do pause to remember and reflect on those who gave their lives for our freedom. And they had opposition in their life that they weren't able to personally overcome. They lost their lives, as we know. And, and even though our, our country has been able to overcome opposition, it takes the sacrifices of individuals to do so. And that's why we have a day like this to honor those who lost their lives against those opponents so that we can worship here freely today. And today we're looking at a passage of Scripture about opposition that some of our New Testament missionaries, Paul and his crew, that they faced as they sought to make disciples of the nations. This is the third week we've been in this Go series. We're talking about going, uh, taking the gospel to our enemies. And then last week we talked about taking the gospel into our unknown. And this week we're talking about taking the gospel out amongst opposition. Amongst opposition. You know, as Christians, we're not all trained soldiers. Uh, but we are constantly on a battlefield. We are on a, on a spiritual battleground. And so we need to understand that as we are sharing Christ and as we are obeying the Great Commission. And today we're going to see how the gospel is still greater than the opposition we may encounter as we seek to spread the message of Jesus. So Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16, Luke writes, As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, as Romans, to accept our practice or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison 
and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Father in heaven, as we continue to worship you today, as we worship here today on this Memorial Day weekend, we've had a tough week as a country. We've had some tragedies happen that burdens all of us, that makes us all want justice, want answers, and mourn and grieve with those who lost family members. But Lord, we are constantly in a spiritual battleground. As believers, we see it clearly. So help us to, Lord, see today uh, what these oppositions are, what this opposition is, and how your gospel can overcome it. Show us what we can do in our own lives to be a part of that, Lord. Lord, I pray that my words reflect your heart today, that you fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you three things today about dealing with with opposition as we're going and making disciples. Three things about dealing with opposition as we're going and making disciples. Number one, I want you to know that the gospel prevails over opposition. In this case, it prevails over demonic opposition. Demonic evil of demons. Demonic opposition. Verse 16 says this. We were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owner as much gain by fortune-telling. Now, sometime, as we saw last week, after leading this woman Lydia to the Lord in Philippi, a church had started. And the missionaries, they continued to go to the place of prayer to worship, to make disciples. And during this trip, as they were doing this every day, uh, they were encountered by demonic Opposition in the form of a slave girl. She had this spirit of divination. In the Greek, this word divination is literally translated as a spirit of python. Spirit of python. Well, what what is that? Well, python was a reference to a a legendary snake that that guarded something called the, the Delphic Oracle. And this oracle was a sanctuary in Greece where they would go and worship. But in the legend, this this snake python was killed by apollo who is considered the god 
a prophecy. And so this legend got turned into a saying that this girl was said to have a spirit of python or a spirit of prophecy. Now, the, the assumption was that she could predict the future, but, but she could not predict the future. Because demons can't predict the future. They're not all-knowing. They, they don't know things that, that, that has not happened yet. But they can observe people. And they can predict how things will turn out. Since they've been on earth much longer than we have been. So under this demonic influence, the slave girl would attempt to predict future happenings just based on watching people and seeing what their patterns were. And then she would speak and say, this is what's going to happen. And then her masters then would charge this and then people would pay. So she really wasn't predicting the future, but she acted like she was. And people wanted their fortune told them. Well, verse 17 says, one day she followed Paul and crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this is not fortune telling. She's not predicting the future. She's just describing who they are. Now, we don't know the motivation behind this. Maybe she wanted them to get in trouble or this, this demon did. But continually this, this happened. And, it, and each Sabbath they'd go down to worship and perhaps witness to people who were looking for God but didn't have Jesus. And apparently, verse 18 says, it kept happening. It says that she kept doing this for many days. So every day they'd go down to the river to pray and they'd go down to worship and tell about Jesus. And here was a slave girl that would say this thing every day. But Paul really never did anything about it at first. But then it, it, it became a burden to Paul's preaching. And what's interesting is he didn't do anything about it until he got annoyed. It says here, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Now, I looked that word up in the Greek, and that word, greatly annoyed, means greatly annoyed. I was like, there's got to be some spiritual component here I don't know about, it, right? So he, no, he was annoyed. You can be annoyed and maybe not sin, right? He was annoyed, and he turned to the Spirit, and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that hour. See, Paul's ultimate goal was to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Anything that was disturbing that would was going to annoy him. Paul was a goal-oriented person. Just because when he became a Christian didn't mean that he didn't stop being a goal-oriented person. He was just now having goals for the kingdom. And so this was a hindrance to him. So he cast the demon out because it was a problem. It was distracting him, possibly preventing people from hearing the word. So he dealt with the distraction. He ignored it as long as he could. But he dealt with it. See, his primary goal wasn't to deliver this girl or other people from demonic possession or oppression. His primary goal was to preach the gospel. But if it got in his way, he was going to do something about it. So as we go on mission for Jesus, we're going to be presented with all sorts of evil distractions. If you don't think demons are at work in our world and people we come across every day, you haven't been paying attention. Amen. You haven't been paying attention. We, we've seen this this past week. Evil, demonic act that only evil could do. Right? But the girl wasn't the problem. See, the demon was the problem. That's why Paul calls out the demon, not the girl. This is a reminder of Ephesians 6.12, which tells us this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers 
over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Most people do evil things because they're around evil influences. For the most part, when we see evil in the world, uh, we are not to let it be a distraction to our mission. But if it directly distracts us, then we may have to deal with evil head on, even though the battle is ultimately the Lord's. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves and leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So for the most part, we let God deal with the evil in our lives, but when you have the Holy Spirit in you, don't be surprised if he chooses to speak through you if you are on mission. In this case, Paul shows how the gospel can prevail over supernatural, even demonic influences, even though that wasn't even his primary objective, that was the secondary objective, but it still prevails over it as he's going about and making disciples. Secondly, the gospel also prevails over social opposition. Over social opposition. Verse 19 says, When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So in the Roman Empire, it was illegal for Jews to try to convert Roman or to convert them, Roman citizens, to Judaism. They allowed the Jews to worship and to have places of worship as long as they didn't cause a problem, as long as they didn't cause a revolt or anything like that. But they were not allowed to try to convert Roman citizens to Judaism. Now at this point, the Romans really didn't see the difference between Christians and Jews. Most Christians were Jews, some weren't. Uh, and so they didn't really see a difference at this part in the early church. So Paul and Silas, the, the two Jews in this missionary band of people, are in some way racially profiled, isolated, and brought before the court. Somehow they knew they were Jewish. And in those days, the, the center of town had a marketplace where you bought goods and services. You could go and get work, as Jesus told par parables about that. But there was literally a judgment seat in the center of town, in the center of the town square, that would take up cases. In fact, uh, excavators and, and, and archaeologists have, have excavated this area in Philippi, and they've actually found this, this judgment seat there in the center of the marketplace. So they took him to this judge to be dealt with for breaking their customs. Now the real reason they were angry, they've been doing this for, for days now we're led to believe, maybe even weeks. The real reason they took him for breaking their customs was because their income was destroyed by Paul casting out this demon from this little girl. That's really the issue. They can talk about, oh, they're, they're hurting our values and they're, and they're hurting our customs all they want. But what it really was is it hit their bottom line. That's where it hurt. They're, they were okay, actually, with them talking about who they were and what they were doing. But the second it affected their life, they took them to court and said, oh, look what they're doing. They're, they're, they're disturbing our customs and our morals. But really, they were disturbing their bank account. So they brought them to it. And then when they tell them what happens, verse 22 said, the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the, and the magistrates tore the garments off them. And Gave orders to, to beat them with rods. Now, there's supposed to be a trial here, but there wasn't a trial. Why? Because the mob. The mob grew. 
the tide of public opinion turned very quickly against these two men. Very quickly. And when the mob grows like that, they will go ahead and they say that they're guilty. And it says, verse 23, they inflicted many blows upon them, which wasn't supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to beat them. They beat them and they throw them into prison and orders the jailer to keep them safely. Again, the mob joined this social force and it seems like they have done something but the gospel prevails even among our social forces. Sometimes the greatest threat to the gospel can be a mob. We see this in our own culture today. Cancel culture, you hear a lot about cancel culture and things like this. There's been cancel culture since, since for 2,000 years at least. It's, it's not a new thing. It's always been around there. If you say something about the gospel or anything that the mob doesn't like, it's going to be a pile on. And so the mob rules, and many times the gospel will butt heads with the mob. So if you are a believer and you really believe in the message of Jesus, the gospel will still prevail against the mob because they can't cancel the gospel. They can't cancel your testimony. They can't cancel the truth. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, there's outer prison where most people were thrown, kind of like our normal jail, where if you get arrested, they throw you in a room with other people. But then there was an inner prison. This is where they put Paul and Silas. This is a cell. And they had them, they had them their knees and legs spread apart in the stocks. It was, very, it was torture. You were like sitting in a very difficult position. And they tortured them there just because they were being obedient the gospel. There's a man named Charles Simeon. He was a pastor of a new church in England in 1783. Y'all remember those days? Anyway, 1783. He was all excited they're going to make disciples and lead new people to, to the gospel of Christ there in England. But the people of the church did not share his joy. In fact, many of the prominent members, they opposed a lot of Simeon's convictions to reach new people with the gospel. So back in those days, you had pews where they were locked on the side. You had kind of lock boxes. You could get in. You kind of had your own pew. We joke about having our own pews, but they really had their own. And you could kind of lock your box in or lock, lock yourself out of it. So what they did is they showed their displeasure to his idea of trying to bring new people in by literally locking their pew boxes in the service. And then they would leave. So that way, if new people came in, they'd have nowhere to sit. So the people would leave when he preached. And then new people would come in, and what happened? Well, God kept bringing people. And he would go out and he would preach, and the pews would be empty, but people would be lining the aisles because they wanted to hear the gospel. You can lock your pews, but you still can't keep the gospel from reaching people. Now, this was a social opposition from within the church, which is a whole other issue, right? But Simeon said this. He said, he would look out and he would preach and see people in the aisles and the pews locked and empty. And he said, in this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, completely empty. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden. And in the case of Charles Simeon, 
He faced social opposition because he was rightly leading from God's word. And the gospel prevailed even over that. Many times the opposition will come because we're doing the right thing. See, the gospel is a threat. It's a threat to people's customs. It's a threat to people's wealth. People's wealth. It's a threat to people's way of life. And living on mission is hard, but it's worth it because people need to hear the gospel. Imagine if Simeon just said, well, the pews are locked. I guess we can't have church. He says, we don't need pews. We've got space. We have aisles. We have other places you can come. See, the gospel, no matter what happens, even if you're thrown in jail, the gospel can ultimately prevail, even social opposition. And number three, the gospel prevails over natural opposition. Natural. So you have kind of demonic, kind of cosmic powers, supernatural powers. If social powers, then you have natural disasters. Things that we don't really blame for anyone. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Interesting. What do you do when you have nowhere to go and can't do anything? You're literally stuck and in pain. Well, they sang hymns. They prayed. And even then, the social aspects tried to keep them at bay. They were still doing what they could do. See, see, they were broken. They were bleeding. They were sore. They were literally in the dark. But they worshipped. A testimony to true faith is what comes out of you when you're truly suffering. Not just having a bad day, but when you really have nowhere to go. Nothing to do. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now under normal circumstances, we would say that an earthquake is a horrible event. That nothing good comes from. But in this case, the ground shook so much it broke apart the stone door closures. It unfastened the bonds from the stocks. And it woke up the jailer. And I've never been through an earthquake before, but I know people who have. And it said they woke him up. And I guess when your bed shakes and your walls shake, it'll wake you up too. And he woke up, and what he saw was life-threatening. Look at verse 27. He woke, and he saw that the prison doors were open. He assumed that they all had escaped. And if they had escaped, it would have cost him his life. So he's going to kill himself. A penalty for escaped prisoners was death. So he was just going to go ahead and end it all. But Paul was evidently watching. Now, Paul could have had bitterness watching the man who beat him. Think about the man who beat you and put you in the stocks and probably spoke negatively to you and abused you. And then something happens, and that next morning you see him getting ready to end his life. Would you allow him to do it? Yeah, he's going to get his today. He's going to get what he deserves. That's not what Paul was thinking. Paul felt compassion for him because he was on mission. He, he cried out, don't harm yourself. We haven't left. We haven't escaped. We're still here. That doesn't make any sense. I guarantee you if there was an earthquake at Hill Finkley and all the doors came open, people would be leaving. But they stayed. And I don't know why they stayed. We know why Paul stayed. They heard him singing. They heard the prayers. 
This caused in verse 29 to tremble with fear. He didn't know what had happened in his life. And he fell down before Paul and Silas. See, that's what grace does to us. Grace allows us, it causes us to fall down. It causes us to, to, to fall down before someone. Right? And, and, and just be overcome with who Jesus is. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the way this is written, he's not talking about being saved from, from uh, the government punishing him. He's talking about spiritually. He heard them singing. He knows who these people were. He knows why they were put in jail. Not for the reason that they were supposed to be there. Verse 31. And they said, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And you and your whole household. You just got to believe. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized once and he's all for his family. Think about this. He went from beating Paul and Silas, probably cursing at them, doing all sorts of evil things to them, to then being saved by Jesus and then washing the wounds he helped inflict on them. See, only Jesus can change a heart like that. Because he saw God's grace the morning of the earthquake. And he saw that there were people that loved him, despite what he had done to them, despite who he was. And people who were willing to risk their lives so that he could have eternal life. The gospel changed his life. He went from beating Paul and Silas to washing their wounds. Verse 34 says, he brought them up to his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. When was the last time you rejoiced that you had believed in God? For some of us, we've been walking with Jesus for many years, but have we just really been overcome with emotion that we would rejoice that we believed in God, that we have been saved? A day before, the man was lost as the day is long. And because Paul and Silas were simply going about their everyday pattern and path of going to the river and teaching about Jesus, because of that, because Paul was annoyed at a, uh, at a demonized girl, a jailer was saved. The gospel is more powerful than demonic sources, forces. It's more powerful than social forces. It's more powerful than natural forces. It can save the darkest heart. You have more of a heart for those who wish to harm you. We talked about this two weeks ago. If you're a Christian, you have enemies. You may not think you do, but you do. You might love everyone, but everyone doesn't love you if you know Jesus. Do you have a heart for those who wish to harm you? Or do you have pride that's still sitting there even though we experience opposition and sharing the gospel the power of god will always prevail years ago there was a man who was leaving australia in the 1800s been working in the gold fields and he had acquired a fortune so he got on the ship to sail away now i know australia is a long plane ride but it was a really long boat ride let me tell you what and he was on the ship and a leak was sprung 
and the lifeboats were lost, and the people were all without hope, and he was this strong man, and he knew that he could fight through the waves. He saw an island in the distance that he could fight, and he could get there, and he was about to jump into the water when all of a sudden there was a little girl right next to him. And the mother had been lost in the storm. And she said, sir, can you save me? Well, he looked at his belt and all the gold that he had amassed. And he looked at the girl. And he looked at his belt again. And he looked at the girl again. Took his belt off and he threw it away. And he put it on his back. He jumped into the sea as the, as the boat was sinking. And he struggled through the waves and with his life almost gone, he reached the land. And the next day, he, he woke up, he regained consciousness, and the little girl was sitting there, and she put her arms around his neck, kissed him on the cheek, and said, I'm so glad that you saved me. Now, we're not doing that type of thing, children. Some of us may be called to. But any time you share the gospel to someone, and they receive it, you are saving them. Through Jesus Christ, through you, is saving them. Do you have someone in your life that you can rejoice over salvation because you told them? Because someone told you, if you know Jesus, whether it was a father or a mother or a grandparent, Sunday school teacher, a BBS teacher, a pastor, an evangelist, or maybe just someone on the street. Someone has told you about Jesus, and that is why you are not going to drown. That's why you were saved. Next week is our VBS. Many children will be here next week that have never heard the gospel. It seems impossible, but it's true. Many that have never heard. Maybe God is calling you to put those children on your back and take them to safety. Present the gospel to them so that they can hear it from you. What, a, what an honor that would be. What an opportunity that would be. It's the one event we have where many lost people come to the church because they're children. What opportunities would God send you as you continue to take the gospel even amongst opposition? Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we, we thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we close our time together today, if there's someone in here that's never placed their faith in you before, they would, they would admit they're standing before you. They would understand that they are a sinner in need of saving and that they would believe, Lord, that you sent your Son to rescue us. And that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave, he has purchased eternal life to those who would simply believe. If there's one in here today that needs to, to receive your salvation by believing your message, that they would do so today. And Lord, for those of us who know you and are going about taking your message to the nations, that you would give us those opportunities where we could have the opportunity to speak your gospel and thus save someone. Not that we did it, but you used us to do it. For your glory for our good, for our faith. Lord, what a tremendous faith-building experience it would be and is, Lord, to lead someone to Jesus. Lord, we love you. 
we, we lift up these prayers to you today. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Today's the band.